0: Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Last week, if you were around, you will remember that we saw Paul... Returning from his third missionary journey. And we were left with the account where Paul was giving some final advice to the elders from Ephesus. And they'd actually travelled to meet him uh, on his way back. And it was an emotional meeting. And it concluded with a heartfelt, tearful farewell In Acts 20, 36, it says, When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. So they knew that that was the last they were actually going to see of Paul. And we know that Paul already had felt some conviction that he should go back to Jerusalem. And we also know that he felt some conviction that at some point he would visit Rome. And you can find that in chapter 19, because he said then, after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Archaea. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So there had been this growing conviction in him. And we we know it wasn't a spur of the moment thing, because as we read through chapter 19 into chapter 20, in verse 22, it said, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. And those are strong words. Paul is saying he feels the Spirit is compelling him. Compulsion is a word we use when we're being forced to do something. So what he's saying is the Spirit is speaking in his life so strongly, he feels compelled to go to Jerusalem. And today we'll see what happens when he gets to Jerusalem. But, as is typical, as we've looked throughout the book of Acts, even on his journey, God has a thing or two to do. So, beginning at the start of chapter 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Coz. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding disciples there, we stayed with them for seven days. Though Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem but when our time was up we left and continued on our way all the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city and there on the beach we knelt to pray so you can already see how strong that conviction that paul was under was because even though everyone is trying to persuade him not to go paul is determined to get to Jerusalem and it carries on. After saying goodbye to each other we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, if anyone starts to tell you there is no place for women in the church, point at that one, okay? Because he's got seven daughters who are all prophesying. Yeah? You know, there is a wonderful ministry open to women, and they're far more sensitive to the ear of God sometimes in these things. Anyway, that's an aside. Okay. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, we've met Agabus before. I don't know if you remember, but back in chapter 11, he'd predicted a famine that was going to affect the whole of the Roman Empire. And it, in fact, did under the reign of Claudius. And he had prompted the church in Antioch to take up a collection to help those who were going to be worse affected in Jerusalem. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. When Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So now, to add to any sense of foreboding that already existed about what was going to happen in Jerusalem, Agabus, a proven, well-respected prophet, adds to the tension. Now, he uses an unorthodox style. He doesn't walk up and say, Thus says the Lord. He takes off his belt. I hope his undergarments were firmly secured. And he ties up his own hands and feet. And he says, This is what the Jews are going to do to you in Jerusalem. So, he brought the revelation. He said, this is what I believe God is showing me. He also brought the interpretation by saying, this is what I believe it means. But you'll notice, he didn't bring an application. And Paul seems to apply that interpretation literally to begin with because his reaction tells us that he thinks it means he will suffer a period of further imprisonment. Because he says, I'm quite happy to be bound up. In fact, I'm willing to die for the gospel. Paul can't be persuaded. And so they travel on. And picking it up again in verse 17, it says, When we arrived at Jerusalem... The brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed. And all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses. Telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you've come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow take these men, join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So while Paul has been busy spreading the gospel throughout Asia and into Europe, things haven't actually been static in Jerusalem. The gospel has continued to be spread, and so now there are thousands in that city who believe, and predominantly Jews, because it was a Jewish city. But, like we've seen elsewhere, it does seem as although the Jews are more than happy to look upon Jesus as the Messiah, there's still something they struggle with. And that is to let go of the grip that the law has had on their lives. And so James expresses his concern. He knows there's trouble. You know? That wonderful phrase from a Monty Python sketch. Trouble at mill. You know? He knows that there is trouble afoot. Because he has been teaching the Gentile converts not to follow the law. And because that's what he's been teaching the Gentiles, the Jews who have been living in those cities, have heard that as well. Now, we know that from the circumcision of Timothy, that Paul had a flexible view on the law. He didn't believe that the law held the answer, But he would comply with it if not to do so would otherwise be a barrier to the gospel. And in fact he wrote that to the Corinthian church and you'll find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Now he's not saying that he's got two sets of standards, or he's double-faced, or anything like that. But he's just saying, I will not let these things be a barrier to the spread of the gospel so if I'm talking to a Jew I will talk to him like a Jew if I'm talking to a non-believing Gentile I will talk to him as a Gentile and in 1 Corinthians 10 he went on and wrote do not cause anyone to stumble whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God even as I try to please everyone in every way For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. So he was, however, saying there were places he would not go. He would not go to places where his acts would cause other people to stumble. And it's important that we recognize that boundary that he'd put in place. But the proper understanding of living under God's grace was a battle. And it was a constant battle that Paul was having to fight. And in fact has had to be fought throughout the church in numerous generations. And he addresses it in a number of his letters to the early churches. You only have to read the letter to the Galatians to see how strongly Paul has to reiterate the argument that we live under God's grace. But he was worried. He was worried that those who were opposing Paul would soon arrive. So James has a suggestion. He says, go and shave your head. Go and go through the purification rituals. So that these men who are worried about what you've been teaching, will see that at heart you are still a good, God-fearing Jew. And Paul, for whatever reason, seeking the peace, decided to accept that compromise. And he went, and he went through the purification rituals. But unfortunately, it was to no avail. We'll pick up in verse 26. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and an offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple and they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area with him and defiled this holy place. They'd previously seen Tromphemus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused. And people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he'd done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander couldn't get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting away with him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks he asked the commander May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please, let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic. Well, look at what he said in just a minute. But there's some interesting things here. It was Asian Jews who were stirring up the crowd. Do you remember the problems he'd had in a couple of the cities on his second missionary journey? In Asia, it may well have been some of those Jews who were in Jerusalem that started to stir it up. Because when you look at the accusations they're making, they're accusations that we've heard before. And in fact they go right back to chapter 6 when they make false accusations about Stephen. And talking about Stephen, they say, this fellow never stops talking against this holy place and against the law. And here, they're making the same accusations. He talks against the temple. He talks against the law. This man teaches against our people, our law, and this place. And besides, he's defiled this place. So the people of God seem intent on killing one of God's messengers. The riot breaks out and it is only the intervention of the Roman guards that save Paul from being killed. Now we don't know why the commander makes this mistake. And thinks that Paul is an Egyptian terrorist. Now, it's quite a surprising mistake to make. Because in those days, Egyptians were regarded as uneducated and unsophisticated. And that's probably why he realises he's made a mistake. Because when Paul opens his mouth, he obviously addresses him in Greek. Because he says, you speak Greek? So Paul isn't uneducated, isn't unsophisticated. And the commander finds he's speaking to a Jew, but he's educated. And he's somewhat taken aback. And so the commander lets him speak to the crowd. Listen to what he says. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speaking to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in that city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon as I came near Damascus, Suddenly, a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied he then goes through the rest of a story that we know about his conversion he talks about ananias and then he carries on when i returned to jerusalem and was praying at the temple i fell into a trance and the lord and saw the lord speaking quick he said to me Leave Jerusalem immediately, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. So Paul tells them all about his conversion. It's a bit reminiscent of Stephen in his defence, when he speaks. He starts off by referring to them as brothers and fathers. And in doing so, he's trying to stress what they have in common. He reminds them of his roots. He's a Jew. He studied with Gamaliel. But then he recounts his encounter with God on the road to Damascus. The interesting thing, is the crowd is listening. In fact, they seem to accept all that very easily. And that might indicate that even in the crowd, there was a large proportion who were already believers or open to hearing. And then, he mentions being sent to the Gentiles. And the mob turns. Earlier on, the elders were talking about how thousands in the city had believed. Where are they now? Where are they when they're needed? In fact, where are James and the elders? Because it seems for a moment that Paul suffers all this hostility alone. In fact, he wrote, later wrote to Timothy. you find it in 1 Timothy 4. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. This crowd, this crowd of Jews, have they so easily forgotten what their prophets have told them over centuries? Because talking of Christ and his church, this is what Isaiah wrote. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah prophesied that God's salvation would go to the very ends of the earth and that the Messiah would be a light to all the nations and to the Gentiles. But the crowd couldn't accept this. They couldn't accept that God's intention, his prime intention, was always that salvation should come to all men and not just the nation of Israel. And we know that's true. Because we read Paul writing in 1 Timothy 2, this is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In some of the older translations, that used to say, it is God's earnest desire. That's the desire of God's heart, which sadly, we know will not be fulfilled. So to Jerusalem. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Don't forget, he was addressing the Jews in Aramaic. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. The commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed, and he realised that he had put Paul... A Roman citizen in chains. For the second time, Paul is rescued from the crowd by this Roman commander. But in so doing, the Roman commander makes a mistake. He was getting ready to beat a Roman citizen. And that would have been an illegal act for which he could have faced dire consequences. So, as a Jew, he hands Paul over to the Sanhedrin so that he can be tried properly. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why, was be, why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there. To judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest. Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that neither are there angels nor spirits but the Pharisees acknowledge them all there was great uproar some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously we find nothing wrong with this man they said what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him the dispute became so violent have you been in churches like this? Yeah? Someone says something, you know, and the argument breaks out. Yeah? All right. The dispute became so violent, that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered troops to go down and take him away from them by force, and bring him into the barracks. This is some church meeting, isn't it? <laughs> hey? The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul's incredible, really, isn't he? After everything else. I mean, he's almost been killed by the mob. He's been rescued a second time. And now, in the middle of the Sanhedrin, he lights the blue touch paper and stands back. He makes a remark that he knows will ignite the debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that issue is over the reality of the spiritual realm. It's about the resurrection of the dead. And that argument becomes so violent. But you can imagine Paul was there feeding the fire. As the argument got hotter and hotter, I'm sure he was just throwing in little comments just to see it blaze. And so, for the third time, the Romans come and save him from being torn apart. You can imagine it, can't you? Sadducees on one arm, Pharisees on the other. He's not doing anything wrong. Oh, we're not having this. You know, I mean... What on earth are they going to do with him? The Roman commander had been hoping that the Sanhedrin would give him the answer. Because if he stood trial in the Sanhedrin and was found guilty, the Roman commander could do something about things. Because he'd been legally tried. And even as a Roman citizen, would have to face the consequences. But actually... The Sanhedrin just seems to add to the problem. What on earth is he going to do? Fortunately, God provides the answer because he says to Paul, take courage. After everything that's happened, take courage. Because you need to go to Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy. They bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they'd killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat or drink anything until we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of the plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander, he has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They're ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he might be taken safely to Governor Felix. So, having been defeated in debate in the Sanhedrin, some of the Jews decide to set a trap. I like the oath. I'm not going to eat or drink until I see that man dead. I wonder how long they kept that up for. But the trap got sprung because news of their plan got out. And as a result, the commander saves Paul for the fourth time. I bet he he did wish he wasn't on duty that week. And he did it by arranging his safe passage to Caesarea. Now, I think... There's a real sense of irony here. Here is Paul, a messenger of God's truth. The people who are wanting to see him dead are supposedly God's people. And he is relying on a pagan Roman commander for his salvation to ensure that God's will is done but I tell you what the word of God is in control Paul's perseverance in the face of all this trouble can only have been fed by his trust in the purpose of a sovereign God a God who will make sure that his will will come to pass And that's what I want us to consider this morning. How do we cope with adversity and opposition? Do we look at what God has spoken? Do we rely on his sovereign will? Do we speak and act confidently? Or do we look at the circumstances, at our own strength and abilities, and run away and hide? God has a plan for his church. And do you know what? He will be faithful to work it out. Do you believe that? God has a plan for your life. And do you know what? He will be just as faithful if you let him to work that out as well. Do you believe that one? As I prepared for this yesterday, I just felt God wanted to speak to some people about promises he has put in their lives Paul got through this because of the promise he had in God he knew with deep conviction from the outset before he went to Jerusalem that he had to go there and he had to go to Rome so whatever happened in Jerusalem it couldn't be fatal could it Because he hadn't got to Rome yet. Do you live with that conviction over the things that God has said over your life? Do you look at what God has spoken? Do you rely on his sovereign will? Or do you look at the circumstances and run away and hide. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk